Good evening to everyone. May God bless you all. It is once again a privilege and an honor to be here with you this evening. I am very thankful for your presence and interest in spiritual things. I am very grateful for the invitation and the opportunity that we've had in this gospel meeting to explore together God's Word and its applications in our lives together. It has been a good week, and I am very grateful for your active participation, your encouragement in this gospel meeting. Um, since this is the last night of the gospel meeting, technically I do want to extend my thanks, my sincere thanks and gratitude on behalf of myself and my family for your wonderful hospitality. I must admit I was a bit worried coming in for this gospel meeting. It's the first gospel meeting I've had since being diagnosed with celiac, and I knew it was going to be weird, in a sense, having to pack my lunch and having people worry about my allergy and all this kind of stuff, but it has been great. I appreciate uh, those who have accommodated me so well and for your patience. I'm very thankful to my aunt and uncle, uh, Dennis and Vicki Westbrook, for their hospitality. They've been wonderful hosts and helped us tremendously, and it's been great to get to know you all once again. Uh, I'm sorry, I do have sometimes a bit of amnesia. Uh, I was here, I think, seven or eight years ago, and I know that I've changed, some of you changed, some of you are new, but it's great to meet the new ones, it's great to rekindle the friendships uh, that were once there too, and it's great to renew our camaraderie and fraternity in Jesus Christ. And it's been wonderful to open the Bible with you, and I appreciate so much the feedback. I've had excellent questions, comments, critique, it's been excellent, very uplifting for me, and I'm extremely thankful. And I pray that hopefully this series has been an encouragement to you all. And hopefully will be a springboard for further investigations in God's truth and further applications as we seek to grow closer to him and seek to be more like him and to give him glory in our lives and as a community together. With all that being said, I'd like to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, we have the famous phrase that I'm sure all of you have heard. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out. That he does not fall, or as the King James render, New King James renders it, take heed that he does not fall. So this text is off quoted, and sometimes we'll even quote it glibly, right, for someone who's being cocky or peacocking, and think, "Wow, that one better watch out. He better take heed lest he fall." And at the first glance, we know that this text is talking about arrogance in some capacity. But where does it really fit? What is it really talking about? This is a problem that oftentimes we have just in general, and this is not the point of the lesson, but this is a free little aside, is that many times we know of verses, and we can quote verses, and we might understand the verse in a certain point of application, but to understand the verse in its context, the information that surrounds it, to understand its use and the point that the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate through the apostles in that text, sometimes is completely lost to us. This is why whenever we're reading a text, we need to stop, and investigate and ask yourself, why is this text here? What is being communicated here? What does this have to do with the point of the book, of the chapter, of the message that the Spirit is communicating in the first century and to us today? And many times we grow lazy. We don't investigate these things. We have these pocket verses that we're comfortable with in our nice little prepackaged theology, and that's about as far as we get. That's not sufficient. We need to understand that we have to open our hearts to the full message of God's word. The sum of his word is truth. And that's not just throwing together a hodgepodge of mixed verses. That's getting back to understand 
the purpose, the intention, the information of the context, and then seeing if we are applying these verses correctly. So let's think about this. What does it mean in this text? Let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Well, to figure out the text on that, let's go back and read the verses beforehand. Paul does a very interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 5, where he's making comparisons to what happened with Israel to what takes place now. And this is really important because when we read the Old Testament, it's important to understand that, yes, we're reading history, things that actually occurred. But in a way, this is super history. It's more than history because even though these are things that occurred, these are things that occurred that have purpose, that establish patterns, that show deep meanings for us, that we're supposed to learn something about. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you will, open your Bibles there. We're going to spend some time here. I will have some of the verses up here on the screen. But Paul makes comparisons through the Red Sea crossing to our baptism. That's amazing. And he makes comparisons to eating the same spiritual food and drinking the same spiritual drink. There's allusions here to the Lord's Supper. And we know that Christ was the rock from which they drank. And we're not going to get into that. That's a whole other lesson that I could really geek out on for a whole long time. And it's really cool to see the deep connections that are there. But we see the purpose of all this and what Paul is bringing us to to demonstrate that the Old Testament, when we read it, yes, we are reading historical events. So we can just grant that, yes, these are literal things that happen. But it's more than that because they are given to us as examples. And this is what Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And now we find our text in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let's analyze this particular text in verse 6 through 11 with a little bit more detail. We understand in verse 6 that Paul says that these historical events are recorded and they actually took place to serve as an example for us. I'm often reminded when I'm reading this text of comparisons of the Hebrew writer. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 makes comparisons of the children of Israel's wandering through the desert and they're waiting to enter into the promised land that rests as parallel, as an example to our journey as Christians. That we are wandering through this barren land of a desert waiting to reach the promised land of that new heaven and new earth that God is uh, going to prepare for us at the end of time. This, is, this parallel, this comparison provides a new perspective in a way that Christians for ages have been arguing this is how we should see the fulfillment of Scripture in the Old Testament. But as Paul goes through and he, he exemplifies the reason for this, he says that we are not to crave evil things as they crave. He then goes through a list in this text of things that we should not do. We should not be idolaters, verse 7. We should not commit sexual immorality, verse 8. 
we should not try the Lord. Verse 9. These are all things that ancient Israel did. But it's really interesting. When we dig in a little bit deeper, we find an interesting citation in Paul's first statement in verse 7. Paul says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. As you've seen in Undoubtedly on the announcements, and as Sean mentioned, I'm going to be speaking about idolatry. And yes, here in verse 7, we have this mention of idolaters. An idolater is someone who bows down and worships an idol. We'll talk a little bit more about what an idol is. But Paul gives us a really interesting clue to the idea of a definition of an idol. Now, he doesn't define it like Merriam-Webster would or in a propositional phrase, but he's teaching us something very important here. Paul says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. Now, when Paul is citing Old Testament text, he's giving proof. He's giving evidence. He said, here's what you should not be like. Because remember, everything that happened was given as an example. And Paul is citing from these examples. So where does this text come from? We need to ask ourselves this. When we're reading the text, and in some of the translations, like the New American Standard, many times citations of the Old Testament will be in all caps. And obviously the text, Paul says, as it is written, gives us a clear form that, okay, he's citing an ancient text. He's citing an Old Testament text. We should have the curiosity to stop and say, where does this come from? And why is Paul citing this particular text? Those are important questions that we should ask. If you're like me, oftentimes we just get lazy in our Bible reading. We have kind of a superficial knowledge of what's being talked about. We're kind of like, oh, let's get through the chapter. Let's get through this Bible reading so we can move on to something else. But we really should adopt this curiosity because there's something really interesting going on here that the Spirit's communicating to us that we should be open towards. But if we don't have a curiosity for the text, if we don't investigate, we can just breeze right past that point and miss the whole thing. What is Paul telling them not to be? Idolaters. Paul then is going to cite a passage about what? Idolatry. But what text does he actually cite? This text comes from Exodus 32 and verse 6. And I want to read this text because I think here's an important point to be made. That the Holy Spirit, I believe, inspiring Paul is making and trying to get us to pay attention to. In Exodus 32 and verse 4, it says... Then he took the gold from their hands. Aaron, remember, Moses is up on the mount. He's going to receive the Ten Commandments. But the people are impatient. They want something done. They want a God to worship. And so they convince Aaron to make this idol for them. So then he, Aaron, took gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a cast metal calf. And they said, and they said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they got up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage in lewd behavior. Or they got up to play. Now, if I were writing this, and thanks be to God, I was not in charge of writing the book of 1 Corinthians. But if this were Caleb thinking about it, and most of us, if you tell someone, don't be an idolater, and you're wanting to give a backup scripture about that, even if you were creating your own sermon or exhortation, most of us would think, okay, 
let's go and cite the verse where they actually bowed down to the idol or the part where they had crafted this graven image. But Paul doesn't cite that part at all. In this text, it's the very same text. He doesn't mention in 1 Corinthians anything about the golden calf. But when we think about idolatry, that's where our minds go to almost immediately. Oh yeah, we remember what happened in Mount Sinai with that golden calf. That's idolatry. But Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Why? Did Paul just accidentally miss the part of the golden calf? No. He doesn't make a mistake there at all. He's teaching us something important. What is that thing? He's teaching us about the definition of idolatry. Because for us today, it's very easy to be arrogant. I know I've thought this numerous times. When you look back at the ancient Israelites, they saw wondrous miracles, right? They saw the, the Red Sea part. They saw the, bur- they saw the burning pillar, and they saw the cloudy, cloudy pillar, and they were led by all these things. They had manna. They had the quail. They saw all of these things, and yet still, Their hearts desired to bow down to Baal. They wanted to worship the Asherah, these false gods. And that's what I think about when I think about Israel and their idolatry. And it's very easy for me and most of us in our modern sensibilities to think, huh, that's just stupidity to bow down to a block of wood, to fashion something out of your own hands and then say, this is my God? Well, a couple things that are important to understand is that, one, most of the ancients understood that that piece of wood or gold or whatever wasn't their actual God, but they looked at it as a vehicle or a representation of something that their God would either look like or inhabit, perhaps. Think about even what's happening in this text. The Israelites are using it as kind of a proxy. Yeah, we still worship Jehovah. They said tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. Aaron tells them that. And yet they're they're losing sight of the real thing to focus on the proxy. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah is like mocking them about, yeah, you're going to go out and chop a piece of wood. You're going to fashion it and then you're going to go bow down to it. That's your idolatry. That's what we think of with idolatry. And we think that's just silly. But what Paul's telling us here is that there's something more to idolatry than just the graven image. There's something more to idolatry than just bowing down to a block of wood or a hunk of gold. Paul hits to the heart of the matter when he makes this citation and says, don't be idolaters. Why? Because the whole point of this, the whole point of their idolatry was not necessarily in the graven image itself, but in that they wanted to satisfy their own desires. What were their desires? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. That's the whole point. The idol was just the vehicle. It was just the excuse. The real desire of their heart that they were projecting and that they were seeking to satisfy was not holiness, was not focus on God, was not attention to the Lord, but rather, I want to eat. I want to relax. I want to go and enjoy myself with recreation. And Paul, in warning them not to be idolaters, takes them to the heart of the matter. Don't be an idolater. Don't just focus on satisfying your own flesh. 
Don't just focus on what's comfortable. Don't just focus on enjoying the blessings now, but understand there's something more. Paul's teaching us about this nature of idolatry. And so what's the point of all this? As he brings us to verse 12. How does verse 12 that we cited work into this? Because it's easy for us to read the ancient text, to read the struggles of idolatry of the Israelites and look down in condescension. And to be arrogant and proud in our hearts and be like, well, we would never be so dumb to bow down to the Baal. We would never be so foolish to bow down to the Asherah. We would never, ever offer our children to Molech. Because we know that that hunk of wood, that block of gold, that chunk of silver is nothing. So we would not stoop so low to do such barbaric things. But Paul is warning us. The one who thinks he stands, watch out that he does not fall. In your arrogance, as you look back to the Israelites, for they are an example for you, don't think yourself immune to idolatry. Don't think that you, in your modern sensibility, have now superseded all the temptations of idols. Don't think that you would be inoculated against the foolishness of prostrating yourself to an idol. It can happen. Because still today, people sit down to eat and drink and rise to play in the same form and fashion that the Israelites did. And what Paul is saying is, do not be arrogant to think yourself incapable of falling to the same thing. But he gives us hope in verse 13 by saying, no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful, so He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The call of idolatry is strong. The majority will fall down to the idol. But God is going to give us a way of escape, a way to overcome the idol, and to see through the lies of Satan, and to worship the one and true living God. But what is our charge? Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And Paul's not just talking about physical idols of Zeus or Diana. He's not just talking about the idols of the emperors of that time. He's teaching us that idolatry is within our heart. And we have to flee from those temptations. So in this evening's lesson, I'd like to talk about tearing down these false idols in our hearts. But we have to be careful that we do not approach this lesson in arrogance or in pride. To think, oh no, no, I, I don't struggle with this. I don't have idols. I worship the true God because I come to church. I worship Jehovah. I, I don't bow down to a graven image. Idolatry is more than that, as we've already demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 10. And so let's try to break this down a little bit more and understand this biblical concept of what really is an idol and what is idolatry. First off, an idol can be a graven image or any representation that is revered or believed to convey spiritual power while idolatry is the worship, the reverence, the adoration of these particular idols. This is the technical definition. But one of the things that I've been mentioning throughout this series is we've been talking about <coughs> pardon me, being different from Babylon and coming out of Babylon. 
We spend a lot of ta- time uh, talking about the things that we attend to. So, thinking about in this framework of attention, an idol is that which commands attention and or admiration with the purpose of devotion that is not God the Father. It's the worship or attention of someone or something other than God as though it were God. And so, think about this in terms of a framework. Because I would be- I believe that this discussion of idolatry is one of the most foundational and fundamental points of the entire Christian worldview. This is what we get down to. A choice between attending and focusing, admiring and worshiping the Creator or the created. Paul sets forth this framework in Romans the first chapter, verses 20 through 25. We see Paul saying, For since the creation of the world, His, that is Jehovah's, invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by that what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, and they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice here the same point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These people, the Gentiles, had set up these idols to worship in the forms of creatures. They were images of the creation instead of serving the Creator. They were attending to these things. But what did God give them to? God gave them up, he says, to the vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts. That was what they really wanted. And they just sought a justification, a framework for providing for satisfying their lust. That's what the idol does. See, when you think about God as the eternal creator, we are created in his image. And we're going to hit on this point a little bit later. But being created in the image of God demands something out of us. It means that we are image bearers of God and we have responsibilities and we have meaning and purpose in our lives. And so to break the patterns of what God has established, to break His law and His will, comes with a terrible consequence. And a lot of times we don't like to face the consequences of our bad decisions. We don't want someone coming and telling us what we're doing is wrong. In fact, when we think about God, God is the great, perfect ideal. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, we know that we have to be holy in all of our conduct because God is holy. He who called us is holy, therefore we should be holy. He is the perfect ideal. And it's difficult for us to face an ideal because we see our shortcoming. If you've ever been around someone who's smarter than you, someone who's more athletic than you, someone who's more organized than you, or just generally more put together than you. It's kind of hard, isn't it? You always feel second rate. You feel like you're not living up to what you could do. And it bothers you. This is why a lot of times people search out other people who are just kind of mediocre. 
because there's kind of comfort in mediocrity. And if we're all following the same gods, well, and idols, it's comfortable in doing that. That's why people who drink will hang out with other people who drink. Same thing with people who have problems with immorality or problems with cursing or problems with whatever sin or vice that there is. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Why? Because they're all kind of coming together and losing any form of an ideal. But the Creator is the great ideal that calls us to be His image bearers. But the problem is we want to fulfill our lusts, our desires, and instead of staying with the Creator who's going to pull us beyond that, we want to then create something else that's going to allow us to satisfy that. And there's plenty of these idols that will allow us to do justifications and systems of justifications. It's interesting as we think about this also that humans have to worship something. And this is something that especially a lot of people don't like to admit. When I talk with many of my secular friends or agnostics or even atheists, they get very uncomfortable when we talk about the fact that atheism, atheism is a religion agnosticism is a religion, that everybody has a religion and everybody worships something or someone. Paul Tripp quotes saying, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do, it defines who we are. You cannot divide, divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. My atheist friends want to say, no, 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 we don't have a religion. I had a very good atheist friend of mine who we were very close when I was at uh, school at Texas A&M. And I said, you know what? I'm interested in going to one of your atheist gatherings. And I said, you do have atheist gatherings, right? He said, oh, yes, we have atheist gatherings. I was there with him, and uh, one of uh, our professors, who was a secular Jew, he was listening to the conversation between me and Luke. And, and, and I was telling Luke, I was like, look, I want to go to one of these meetings of yours. And he said, okay. But it might be a challenge. I said, well, why is it a challenge? You and I have had conversations, and I'm very open-minded. And he's like, oh, well, uh, Caleb, the fact is our atheist group meets on Sunday morning. What? You guys meet on Sunday? And you come together, and you eat together on a Sunday morning? And he's like, yeah, what's the problem with that? And I said, and you guys don't have a religion? He's like, No. And immediately, our secular Jewish professor started cracking up because he saw where I was going with this. And I'm like, okay, okay, I know, I know you're a little blinded here, but you are literally meeting on Sunday, a day of worship, to come together in a congregation to eat together, to have fellowship, and talk about your atheist text. And you don't think that's a religious experience. And he's like, no. I, 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 and he's like, then he started giving excuses. Well, we need to do it on Sunday because that's when everybody else is at their services and we can actually get the restaurant and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, tell yourself whatever you want to tell yourself. But I can tell right now this is a religious experience. Because when we think about worship, worship is what we attend to. And I've mentioned this in many of the lessons so far. Attention is so important. It's something that we have control of. There's a lot of things in our lives that we don't have control over. But what we attend to, what we focus on, is our control. And the world sees the importance of this. Advertisers see it. Facebook, media companies, as we've talked about, they see it. 
The challenges with lewdness and lust and pornography, they understand the importance of focus and attention. And the world clamors for our attention because they know its power. But yet many times we can be deceived in thinking, well, my attention is not that big a deal. So what if I focus on this? So what if I focus on that? Because what we attend to is what we really worship. That's the important thing. And people don't realize that all of these things that are considered non-religious, that are secular, are really just alternative forms of worship. This hit me really big when I went to Texas. Now, I love Texas, and I know I've kind of maybe bashed on Texans a little bit, but God bless the Texans. You know, and they're good brethren down there. But speaking of Texans in general, and my two sons are technically Texan, they've got some interesting practices down there in Texas. I remember going down there for the first time and driving through and looking at just how much industry there was and all the stuff. And I drove by this place, and it was huge. Enormous lights, and I immediately reckon I was like, wow, that's a stadium. I wonder what professional team plays there. Turns out it wasn't a professional team. It was just a high school team. I was like, wow, they have all these massive places. And what do they do in these massive places? They come together. They have chants. They observe a, a competition coming together. They all ha ha they don regalia. They have a particular uniforms. They come together for a specific time. And they have a fervor behind it. And I looked at this and I'm like, that's a temple. Now I know the Texans won't like that, but they have their football temples. And football is like religion in Texas. It's big. Friday night is a sacred night. You don't schedule anything else. Because you are taking time for football. And Saturday, that's sacred too. We got football on Saturday. And guess what? We have it on Sunday as well, and Thursday night. People will dedicate hours and hours of time. And it was very interesting, working in Texas, we had some people who would say, well, I can't really make it to services, but they would be out there for four hours at a football game. They would attend to that. Somehow they could not remember a single Bible verse, but they had the entire roster of their football team memorized. Wow. What are you attending to? It's not just Texans. I don't want to beat up on them. It's people all across our society. Sports is a religion in America. It is an idol that clamors for our attention. And it's not just sports. There's recreation. There's various hobbies. There's commercialism. There's consumerism. There's health, as we've seen, especially over the last two years. Health in itself can be an idol. Security can be an idol. Individualism can be an idol. Collectivism can be an idol. Social movements can be an idol. All of these things that clamor for us. And especially in the downfall of religion in the West over the last hundred years, people have been seeking to fill the hole in their heart with some form of religion. Which is why you have such fanaticism rising up with entertainment. You have these comic cons. You have various gen cons. You have Star Wars cons. People who are coming together to participate in a form of a collective attention. And at the fall of identity with God, something has to replace it. Because human beings are going to continue to seek to worship something or someone. And when you take out God, what's there? Competing idols that vie for the attention and vie for supremacy and vie for power. Timothy Keller wrote, everyone worships something. 
The only choice you get is what to worship. So we need to dismantle this false fiction of, well, we have religion and non-religion. That's absurd. There is no religious and secular divide as neat as the modernistic forces around us would love to deceive us into thinking that. What you have is religion, service to the true God, and a bunch of false religions and false gods. Science itself can be a religion. Scientism is a religion. These things are asking for our loyalty. But we cannot escape from worshiping one of them. That is important to understand. And when you're talking with your friends and family, there are a lot of people who will try to say, well, you know, I, I'm just going to worship whatever, or I don't worship, I'm not religious. They need to understand, no, they are worshiping something or someone. And it's important to understand the choice in terms of the hierarchy that we are given. And we think about attention in the biblical frame, God calls us to attend to the highest ideal. Who is the highest ideal? God, the perfect creator. That is who we are to attend to because we are made in his image. And the only proper form of worship is when we have the proper hierarchy that God has given, that we put him in the first spot. He is the first one that we attend to before all other things. But what the world has done is said, no, no, no. God is not the highest ideal. God doesn't even exist. And if he does exist, he's detached. And he doesn't want the good for you. You need to follow yourself. You need to speak your own truth. You need to glorify yourself. And so what we see the world doing is putting forth in that first ideal, that first place of the hierarchy of our lives, self. You serve yourself. Or you serve pleasure. Or you serve society's progress. You can fill in anything. Some people serve golf. Some people serve fashion. Some people serve their health. Whatever it is, it's something that they're attending to that is lesser than the great creator. That doesn't mean that these things should never have any point of attention. Our physical health is important. We should be good stewards of what has been given to us. There are times for rest and recuperation. There are times for fun and engagement. But all of these have to be ordered in the proper hierarchy. When we think about Matthew chapter 22, this is a key fundamental text. And what Jesus is teaching us here is to have the proper order of our attention. The proper order in terms of who and what we worship. Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment in the law is. And we see him saying in verse 37 of Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Jesus is saying, attend to God with everything you have. 100% devotion to Him. He is the top in your hierarchy. There is no deviation from that at all. That is the greatest and foremost. Loving God with our entire being is in essence calling us out of Babylon. It's calling us out of idolatry to put God in the proper place, in his proper station, in the hierarchy of our lives. And every single one of us has a hierarchy in our lives. We can't avoid it. It's a part of who we are as humans. But after that, we see Jesus saying, the second, he's showing a structure, an order here, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So we should serve others, but they don't belong in the first point of the hierarchy. They should be attended to, and ourselves should be attended to. We should love ourselves, not in some hedonistic or modernistic hippie way, but we should take care of ourselves and recognize the value that God has placed upon us as His image bearers, as human beings. But that self-love does not come above love of others, and it does not come above love for God. There is a clear hierarchical order in the Christian system of what Christ is teaching us. First, God, immovable. Then others, then yourself. These things must be attended to. And to have God as the first and foremost in the hierarchy, it then liberates us to put things in their proper perspective. But the temptation of what Satan is going to speak to us is trying to elevate these other things that we attend to in our life and try to put them in the place of God. That then we begin to focus on these things in an undue manner. We begin to focus either on our family too much, on being popular and connected with others. We begin to focus on money. We begin to focus on our job, on sports, on entertainment, to the point where God no longer is in the first. And we need to remember the exhortation to the one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Because we can easily think we are standing with the proper hierarchy, that God is first in our lives. But in reality, he's not. Remember, the Jews at the base of Mount Sinai were putting forth this calf and ready to make a feast day to Jehovah. In word, perhaps, they said, yes, God is at the top of our hierarchy. But what was really there? Self, pleasure, fun. And the proof of those things comes through our actions. It comes through our beliefs. And this is where we have to be honest with ourselves. But I want to talk about the impact here real quick about the destructiveness of idolatry, of why it's so radically important that we have God as immovable in that first place. Because when we put anything else in the place of God, when we place any other idol or desire in that position, we set ourselves up for failure and we actually create what I'm calling a fragmentation in our minds. And what do I mean by that? Whenever we place something in the place of God and we create an idol, that's what an idol is, whatever that is. It can be an idol of money, money, fame, sex, family, recreation, whatever. It actually destroys the harmony in our life because God created us for us to be subject to Him. And there's a form in which the pattern of God and His people is demonstrated in a way of a hierarchy. Just like in a marriage, there's a headship. And Paul talks about the headship of man and wife. And he also talks about that with male and female in 1 Corinthians 11. And God is like the head. He is in the head of the hierarchy. And we, his people, are to be the bride of Christ. This is the harmonious relationship that God brings us to when we are willing to place him as the ideal, the first in our life, in an uncompromising form and follow him completely. But when we remove God from that and we put another idol there, it breaks the harmony in our life. It's like trying to force an engine in a car that it does not belong, or computer chips and things that it does not work, or 
feel any analogy with that. It's putting pieces that do not belong with it. We are programmed to worship something, and we are intended to worship God the Creator. When we put something else in there, it will not work. It will bring death. It will bring discomfort. It will bring a whole host of psychological, spiritual, and physical problems in our life. And yet people are feeling the effects of following idols, and they continue to go after them. What we need to understand is that by having an idol in that place of God is fundamentally an act of rebellion, just like it was an act of rebellion of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 32. And in so doing, it will tear our spirit apart. It will injure us profoundly. And then instead of finding harmony, instead of focusing on truth, instead of attaining to the greatest ideal and becoming like Christ in our lives, as we are intended to be, each one of us, Instead, we will begin to pursue the idol. And we begin to think of how we can then justify ourselves in terms of the idol that we follow. How that our devotion to the idol really is just normal. It's not that important. That the admiration that we place on it is actually a benefit to us. And it's sad. Talking to Christians, and I'm not speaking about these pagan heathens out in the wilderness. I'm talking about us here. The idols that our heart produces. That I've heard so many brethren, and I myself have pursued idols, and instead of being honest and saying, you know what, I put that above God. Instead of going to services, I just stayed home and just focused on myself. I chose work over God. I chose pleasure over holiness. And many times when people are challenged on this, they become very defensive. And they don't realize that this idol is actually seeking to enslave them and to bring them into bondage, as we talked about last night. Romans chapter 6 warns of that. That this sin is going to want to reign over us and control us. That's what the idol wants. More and more devotion. Baal wanted devotion. Moloch wanted devotion. The Asheroth wanted devotion. And it led them to slavery. Not only a slavery to their service to those false idols, but God eventually gave them over to what they wanted. Captivity to Babylon. And it's sad. It's sad when Christians profess with their mouths that, yes, God is first in their life, but in the way they use their time, in the way they use their money, in the way they focus on things, God's not first. And this has been a uniting theme. If you think back on the lessons that we've talked about this entire week, whether it's how we act together as a Christian community, how we train our children, the way we use social media, the challenges with pornography and other lust. These are all idols of Babylon that seek to tear us away from the biblical pattern and put us into bondage. But we have been in bondage. Every single one of us were in bondage prior to being liberated by the blood of Christ, prior to being brought into the church. 
Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, saying, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. They present themselves as gods, saying, If you will serve me, you will have satisfaction. If you serve this job, you're going to be able to provide for yourself and be comfortable. If you serve this entertainment, you're never going to have to worry or focus on something bad. Many of us can see these false gods in very specific forms. It's very easy to point out the false gods of somebody else. It's very easy to pick on the alcoholic and say, well, yeah, alcohol promises that you will forget your pain. Alcohol promises a fun time. It promises many things. An illustration I often use in Puerto Rico is that there's this huge billboard in San Juan, the capital, and it's of uh, some beer, but it always has like these really attractive people dressed and they're playing on a beach and it's like, you know, grab life and then grab one of these beers. And it presents this wonderful form. It said, if you will take of this, you can have this great thing. It's the same temptation that Satan had to eat. Follow something other than God and you will have what you want. But what Satan doesn't show, what the beer commercial or billboard doesn't show, is the cost, the terrible death, pain, and enslavement that comes from pledging allegiance to that false God. It never ends well. There is no satisfaction at all. But this fragmentation that takes place in our minds, when we take something that does not belong in the place of God and put it into the place of God, and we recognize it's broken, it's empty promises, but yet we still want to believe in the promises of that idol. We still think that that idol can give us the satisfaction that we long for desperately. This is where then, instead of turning to God and recognizing the falseness of those idols and the shortcoming of those, people double down on them and create entire systems of justification. Ideologies can be seen as a system of thought, a body of concepts, especially about human life or culture. But what we've seen, especially in this last century, is that ideologies are fragmented parts of a whole. To give you an example, in current politics here in the U.S., you have different ideologies. One, of rugged individualism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You should be able to stand on your own two feet. The other side of that is collectivism, which says there's no way we can do things individually. You don't even have an identity individually. It's all for the collective good. Well, which one's right? They battle back and forth. They form allegiances. They put out articles and put out propaganda and say, no, you need to believe in our system. And political parties are just distillations of these ideologies that follow. If you'll follow our political party, all of this will be solved. They promise great things. But these are just fragmented parts of the whole. We understand in the illustration of collectivism versus individualism that these are points of view. But the problem is, instead of creating a holistic form in the proper hierarchy where God is first and foremost, people want to put their system forth as the answer. If you'll adopt this, you can have everything you want. And then these systems begin to war, whether it's in politics or whether it's in philosophy, whether it's in recreation or consumerism and the, in the uh, 
fight for your attention. They seek to establish dominance. And then people create these ideologies and then are faithful to the ideology and become entrenched to the ideology. I don't know if you've ever spoken to an ideologue, someone who is tied to an idolatry, an idolatry, an ideology, an ideology. Sorry, it's very close to idolatry. That's the point. Is that it's tough to talk to an ideologue because they're so set in their way. And you bring up counter evidence, doesn't matter, won't listen to it, gotta stick to my ideology. And we see this on, on both sides of the political spectrum and all around our society. And then when people fall into ideologies, they can't communicate with each other. They won't consider any outlying evidence. They don't have a curiosity in pursuit of truth. Why? They're more interested in propping up their idol and serving their idol. Because they don't have God in that position. And this has become very apparent with movements for various political points in our system today where people are more concerned about establishing their political utopia, their ideological vision of the world, than they are to actually coming into harmony with God. And these ideologies, they war against each other, just like the pagan gods warred against each other in ancient times, because they tried to establish dominance. And they always promise freedom, but they never deliver. And Christians can fall into this. I've seen Christians fall into this. Christians that, instead of following the biblical pattern for the church, they fall more in line with allegiance to rugged individualism. Christians that, instead of following into the pattern of individual responsibility connected into the community, they fall more into the government's approach of, well, collectivism will save us all. It happens on both sides. And all these ideologies, and whether that's political or even with sports or or fame, or whatever the case may be, they will bring us to complete bondage. But it is only the whole truth of God that can actually liberate us from these bondages. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is not beholden to an idol. Truth belongs to God. Truth destroys idolatry. It opens our eyes. It frees us from the bondage of that. If you want to be free from the idols of Babylon that surround us, that inundate us on the television, on internet, and all the, the influences that society has around us, the only way that we are going to be able to destroy these idols is if we turn our hearts to God and accept His truth. And if that truth, the Logos, will work in us, to liberate us and free us and allow us to be healed from our blindness and our pride. It is so easy to look at an opposing ideology when we are stuck in an ideology and think, man, those people are so ignorant. But yet many times we are blinded to our own and only a return to God's truth will deliver us. But there's a question of identity that I, hit, I hinted on earlier. And this identity question is deeply tied into the question of our focus. In Psalm 135, verse 15 through 18, it says, The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The more we attend to an idol, the more we become like it. 
the more you watch football, the more you become like a football fanatic. The more you play golf, the more you become like a golf fanatic. The more you attend to fashion or health or any idol around, the more you will become like that. But the amazing thing is this works for God, is that God has created us in his own image. And the more that we focus on God and in the perfect image of him, incarnate form, Jesus Christ, the more we will become like him. And that's what we are intended to do. But the only way we can ever hope to do that is if we first and foremost attend to God the Father. It will not happen with a divided attention. And God will bring all these idols and all those who are idolatrous into punishment, just like he did with the children of Israel, just like he did with Babylon, just like he did with Rome. God will not permit idols to stand. And this is fundamentally the question of our lives. At the end of our lives, who will be in number? Who will be in that first place? What will we be attending to? Because if we are not attending to God, and God is not in that first place in our hearts, in our lives, then He's going to give us over to those idols, so to speak. He will give us to an eternity of those idols, and the consequence of those idols. That is an eternity of punishment. Just like in Romans chapter 1, he gave them over to those lusts. And they had the terrible consequences of that. So too, God will do the same for us. But if at the end of our lives, at the end of time, we find ourselves having God in that first place, attending to him first and foremost, then we will be able to spend an eternity with that fulfillment. So what's the point for us today? We need to recognize that there are false gods all around us. And there are false gods in our hearts. It's very easy to point out to everyone around us and identify those false gods. But what are your false gods? And if you struggle with that question or have never thought about that question at all, I encourage you to stop and ask, what am I attending to? What am I focusing on? Where am I spending my time? Because don't deceive yourself in thinking, well, as long as I go to church on Sunday morning, on Wednesday night, as long as I read my Bible for the Bible lesson, that's it, I've got those days done. And yeah, it's not any less than that. I'm not trying to diminish that. But if that is what you feel like is enough in terms of your attention, but the rest of your days you're spending time on video games, you're spending time on social media, you're spending time on sports, on whatever it is, and it's not God, and not everything in your life is ordered for that. I know a lot of people think that that's completely radical. I was talking to a preacher one time, and we were talking about ordering your life, and I said, I think our whole purpose and point is to use God as our standard. We're to be holy as he is holy. We're to radically orient our lives to have him being served by everything that we do. And a gospel preacher told me, that's too high of a standard, Caleb. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 48, Jesus tells us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And a lot of times we look at that and scoff and say, well, we're, we're never going to be perfect in terms of never making an error, so let's just not even worry about that ideal. The point is God is the perfect one. He is the one that has to be our ideal. 
And if we do not have him as the ideal, we are following after an idol. And we can justify ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and try to make ourselves feel as comfortable as we want. But the fact of the matter is, if God is not first in our lives, then we have an idol and he will bring us to justice. So what do we need to do? We need to tear down these idols. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 12, 12 through 3, this is why God puts so much stress on the Israelites. Remember, they are written to us, for us, as an example. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the, high, on, the, on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn the asherim, that is their false deities, with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And guess what? Did the Israelites do it? No. They compromised. They thought they could have a little bit in there. They didn't completely drive it out. And then what do you see? Time after time, a back and forth, where they become overwhelmed by idolatry. The false gods that they would serve would not deliver them. They would, they would in, incur the wrath of God and the problems of the consequences of their bondage. And then they would cry out to God. And then some men would rise up, like a Josiah, like a Hezekiah, and they would clean house. But then it would come right back. Because they were not willing to make the sacrifice of destroying all of it. Clean it out. What does that mean? It means that if you struggle with the attention of just being a football fanatic, turn off the television. Throw out the television. Sell it. Get rid of it. You would make that argument for someone struggling with pornography... To an addict of that nature, of someone who's enslaved, you would say, turn off your computer, get a filtering software, go to any length possible. But yet with other gods that are more socially acceptable, we're okay with compromise. God says, no, destroy every place. Get it out of there. Don't do it. Because God is a jealous God. That's why he says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to those uh, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a matter of love and hate. Do you hate the Lord? Well, if you have idols in his place, that's akin to saying you do. If you're willing to put your job above service to him, if you're willing to put your pleasures above service to him, if you're willing to put anything above your service to him, then you got an idol and it needs to be taken out. The challenge we face is that each one of us has a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And the thing is, you can go your whole life trying to patch things up, pursuing these idols, but you will never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied with entertainment. You'll never be satisfied with sports. You'll never be satisfied with consumerism. You'll never be satisfied with sexual pleasure or any other earthly pleasure. You'll never even be satisfied with your family or any other person. The only one that can provide the satisfaction is the one true living God. Everything else is an idol. 
So the final exhortation I leave you with is going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you think, oh, I don't struggle with idolatry. I'm a good Christian. Examine your heart. Ask yourself this. Paul wrote to brethren, and he says, Therefore, let the one who thinks he stand watch out that he does not fall. No temptation is overtaking you except something common to mankind, and God is faithful so that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Both the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I know it sounds scary to chop down an idol. Perhaps it's been a custom in your life the entirety. Perhaps you've wrapped up your identity with that thing, and you are scared to death about cutting that idol down. Have faith. Take courage, brother and sister. For God will give you the way of escape. He will be able to help bear you up in that trial. But you must be ready to make a severance with that idol. You must tear it down and flee from it. So the question I leave, with, leave you with this evening is who, whom are you serving? Is it the one true living God? Or do you have an idol in your heart that you are keeping? You can deceive everybody else. And you can look down at condescension at other people. But if you do not have God in that first spot, and you do not radically serve Him as the one true Creator, the ideal which you must pursue, then you're deceiving yourself. And God will find you out. And if you are not a Christian tonight, I want you to think about this really hard. You worship somebody. You can't get around from worshiping somebody. And if you're not a Christian, I can tell you that you're not worshiping the Creator. You have an idol in your heart. And I say that not as a point of condescension, because I too was enslaved to idols. I too battle idols every day. And I tear them down to the glory of God. But if you are not a Christian, then you don't have that hope of finding life with the one creator that he has made you and you are intended to worship him. Why not set aside these idols and serve the one true living God tonight? You can come, believe in Jesus Christ, repent and turn from your sins, confess Christ as the son of the living God, being united with him in baptism, raise the wise walk in newness of life, serving him as the one true creator. We're ready to help you with that if you're willing. Or if you are a Christian, Take heed if you think you stand, so you do not fall. If you know that you have not had God in that first spot, God calls you to come back. He calls you to tear down the idols as He instructed Israel to do, and serve Him with all of your heart and all of your being. You can come in repentance. And we stand here not to judge you, but to offer help and an invitation to serve the one and true living God. If there's any way that we can make your, help you make your life right with God tonight and tear down those idols, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.